This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning, you're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C. Today's show, I speak to Angela Christian Wilkes, researcher from DK University, about the press coverage of the recently concluded Women's World Cup and how the beautiful game has begun taking on a broad range of social issues. You know, welcome, Angela, to the show. If, if Can I just give you a perspective? If you look at the media coverage of the Women's World Cup, I mean, the coverage was relatively positive. Could you help us, though, contrast the extent and depth of the coverage versus the previous Women's World Cup in France? Yeah, um, speaking anecdotally, it, it's a little tricky to um, compare and contrast the vibes, I suppose, because I went to um, France in 2019. So I didn't get to experience the World Cup in Australia. But I think even having that context from an Australian perspective, I can see that it's just this World Cup was huge, unprecedented. I came into it thinking that it would have somewhat of an impact, but it went above and beyond. And I think from an, um, a local perspective, a lot of that comes back to how well the Matildas, our, our national team, did in the World Cup. Um, they went further than they've ever gone in a World Cup before, went further than the men's team, the Socceroos have ever gone in a World Cup as well. So there was a lot of attention being brought to the tournament through their performance. World Cup sold more tickets. It was the first World Cup to break even. In Australia, we had TV record ship. Like the the most watched TV program ever was the Matildas in um, their semi final, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so, just all of that points to the fact that it will have outdone France. Um, and it was predicted to outdo France from the start, from FIFA's perspective. They were really hoping that this was going to be the most World Cup, most watched World Cup ever before the tournament even commenced. Yeah. In women's sport, every kind of big moment feels like the biggest moment ever, but this World Cup truly was um, the biggest one ever on so many different fronts. Right. So it did surpass expectations. Um, many had high expectations. I think it even beat expectations. What do you think were the main factors that contributed to the results? sounding success of the World Cup? I think there's a few different threads. Um, Since 2019, the growth of women's club football has been quite rapid and there's been a lot of growth in terms of the broadcasting space there. So I think generally there's been more accessibility and viewership for things like the Women's Super League um, in England and we've got kind of these new, a new phenomena of football superstars like Sam Kerr, Peniel Harders, that kind of thing. And so I think that's kind of generating more interest around the women's game generally the, there's a lot of work to do, as we saw with a lot of the kind of labour and work disputes that occurred with national teams at this World Cup, but the p- women's football at the highest levels is professionalising at quite a fast rate as well. Yeah, there's kind of two, the game is getting more competitive and the, yeah, again, going back to access, there's more football that people can watch during club seasons now more than ever. So I do wonder if that's had a bit of an impact, but I think um, for this tournament in particular, it was an incredible tournament. It was very, very competitive. So this was an expanded tournament with 32 teams. A lot of people, myself included, were quite sceptical of that at the start because um, we thought that the main argument was that it would mean that the tournament itself wouldn't have been as competitive, that there were going to be more blowout matches. That, um, But it was kind of the complete opposite. You know, we saw such a diverse range of nations getting through to the knockout stage. We saw football giants getting knocked over. We had these incredible moments, huge games. So I think that 
people must have, I, I, I don't have the perspective of someone kind of tuning in for the first time, but I think that really would have engaged a lot of football fans who haven't engaged with women's football before and brought them into the game, seeing this incredible product um, and hearing about it. But at the same time, I think the improved accessibility and visibility and broadcasting, again, I think improved broadcasting is a huge part of it as well. So that drawing more people in and being able to actually see the game and see the World Cup. It's interesting because you say in the improved competitiveness and professionalization and the expanded broadcasting coverage of the Cup. Um, I just want to focus on the competitiveness. I fully agree with you because I think there were many firm favorites coming into the World Cup, but because the game has become so global and that the, the quality of the performance has been elevated across all the teams, that's what made it competitive, isn't it? If you really want to make these games successful, you cannot have just two or three dominant nations. Yeah, 100%. And that was a really, really pleasant surprise of this of this tournament. I think one of the resounding themes and one of the things that I hope a lot of people will take away from this World Cup as well was that there were nations who competed and did incredibly well in, kind of in spite of the circumstances. I, I mentioned there that there were kind of labour disputes as well coming into this tournament yeah. and there are nations such as Nigeria, Jamaica, um, Spain. Spain is the very, very big example at the moment as well who came into this World Cup not necessarily being given the resources and the support to to succeed, that, well, not being given the resources and the support that they should be given by their federations to succeed, but were still able to do such an incredible job. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, it's kind of the the standard globally of women's football is... Um, elevated so much. Elevated, yeah. And, and a lot of that will come back to the, the club football landscape and conditions and resourcing improving in that space. And the more competitive those leagues are, the more competitive these national players will um, be as well because they're playing in better leagues and competitions and more competitive leagues and competitions. So, yeah. And you 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 were referring just now to the expanded broadcasting rights uh, that have taken place, right? I mean, you compare and contrast now, you see, you know, the proliferation of women-only sports channels and even recently the the discussion about decoupling, right, the broadcasting rights of both men's and women's World Cup because fundamentally the women's World Cup can stand on its own two feet. It doesn't need to, you know, latch on to the men's, men's World Cup broadcasting rights right help us contrast in terms of you know in australia particularly right how how extensive was the broadcasting coverage of the women's world cup yeah so in australia i'm i'm not too sure what the situation would be in malaysia but we have things called anti-siphoning laws basically it means that when you have major tournaments such as the world cup um a certain amount of coverage has to be available on free to air tv um and so we had channel 7 here in australia they were broadcasting all of the matildas matches and a select few other major games as well. But then the rights were secured by a broadcaster called Optus Sport. And there is this interesting situation in Australia where if you're a football fan, you kind of need to have subscribed to like three different streaming platforms if you want to be able to watch the main leagues in Australia. And so you're paying like three different subscription services. And that was a really interesting thing I noticed talking to fans from other countries. They were like, I need a I need a login for like I need to pay a subscription to be able to watch all of these games. If I was back home in, say, Germany, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't need to do that. But 
there is an interesting kind of argument there. If the games have been available all on free-to-air, would the quality of the coverage have been as good? Because I think Optus Sport did a really good job in ensuring that they had, you know, the pre-match coverage, the analysis panels. They did a really great job of doing content, like condensed content, terms of mini matches and highlights and different kind of collations of every goal from this group stage. And so that's the kind of contrast there. So a lot of it was not accessible for the general public if you didn't have that subscription, but the big matches were. So what you're saying here is that, you know, you pay not only for the viewership, but the ability to do the deep analysis, the fun facts, the the build-up leading up to the game, the post-game analysis. That's also what makes the game also extremely interesting, isn't it? And and I wonder when you think about broadcasting and contrast that perhaps with social media, this time around, social media did play an outsized role, right, in improving visibility because you had all this analysis and content that also complemented it. So it played a very important role in hyping up the games and also doing the analysis post-match, right? Yeah, that, there's an. In, but then again, there was this interesting dynamic of so teenagers, I think, or like young adults making these um, highlights or TikToks um, featuring footage from the games. Um, and that's kind of a, I suppose, an expression of fandom and people were engaging with that content and sharing it. And then FIFA would come in and like block <laughs> the oh. the footage, which was, a, it, it's kind of an interesting thing because they were blocking the footage for copyright reasons, but then that kind of curtails that organic momentum and organic yes. engagement that people are producing. So I'm sure there's lots of boring reasons for why they do that. But yeah, the the social media side of it is is really important. And I think this World Cup has been the social media um, engagement has brought in a lot of new new fans and kind of shown how the women's game can be an alternative and, and has a different kind of cultural base to the men's game. And that's brought a lot of yep. people in. Um, there's that. And then, yeah, again, there's been so much really um, interesting analysis from just like, yeah, from the football, the tactical analytical side of it that's been shared on social media as well that's been really interesting and engaging. So I do think, yeah, there's a lot of different ways that social media has been complementary to the World Cup experience and the World Cup in- engagement side of things and not just as that second screen. We're heading into some messages and when we come back, we continue our discussion with Angela from Deakin University about the recent Women's World Cup. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking to Angela Christian-Wilts, researcher from Deakin University on the recent, recently concluded Women's World Cup. Angela, you know, at the earlier conversation, we, we did mention that this World Women's World Cup really has been used as a platform to raise a whole range of social issues. You know, in your view, what were the major societal issues that this Women's World Cup was able to focus and put spotlight on? Oh, that's a big one. Again, I think it comes back to um, the, the for me, the thing that I will take away from this World Cup, it was the World Cup of, of protest in a lot of ways and the World Cup of collective action. And that's been such a vital, like collective action and solidarity and unionization basically has been such a vital thread for the progression and growth of women's football. Um, 
we have our own Matildas. They went on strike in 2015 after the 2015 World Cup in Canada to push for better conditions. And that was kind of this, the first domino, well, not even the first domino, because you can go back much, much further than that in terms of how they ended up in that situation themselves from the work of the Matildas that came before them. But that that strike was really important in terms of getting them to where they are now, where they've got equal pay with the, the men's national team and the Socceroos. But I think for this World Cup, there is that tension between biggest World Cup ever, professionalization is still chugging along. We still need to have that collective action. We still need to have that unity. We still need to have people working together as a group and a united front to see things improve, to see change. Um, and I think that's been a really important yeah, thread throughout this yeah. whole World Cup, um, even now. And you talk about collective action, and that's very evident in the recent uh, controversy we saw erupt over the Spain football team. They were the winners, but that positive aura that emanated from that victory was very quickly tainted by the recent scandal where mm. the country star player Jennifer Hermoso was kissed by the Spanish football president Luis Rubiales. Could you get could I get your reactions to this incident? It's it really feels like the whole collective group of the football association is against him. Yeah, it's a big example of power in action. And I, I've been thinking about this. I'm like, I kind of feel sorry for him because I feel like he must not have any friends because everyone who's kind of on his side is on his side because he's got so much power. And that we, we've kind of seen that with the way that Jorge Vilda, the coach himself, very carefully timed his kind of statement about the non-consensual kiss that uh, Rubiales did with Jeremy, Jenny Hermoso, timing his statement so that it was kind of after something had been done about Rubiales himself. He didn't do it while he had any kind of potential for fallout with Rubiales because Rubiales is the guy that's hiring Jorge Vilda and Rubiales is the one who is also relying on Jorge Vilda and his father, Angel Vilda, for support within that federation. So it's all very messy, but the... <laughs> The victory itself, I I was as a fan. There's so many layers to this, but there are, there were players who didn't get to play in the, that World Cup final and didn't get to celebrate that victory because they've taken a step back. And some of those players have been invited back into the fold um, with the national team and have refused because the conditions that they've requested. So this was in September 2022 with the 15 players sending in the letter. Those conditions haven't been met. So, And there is an interesting tension again with what's happening with the Spanish national team. Those 15 players sent letters individually um, and some players have come back in and some players have not. But what we've seen since the end of the World Cup and this Rubiales situation escalating is that there's now definitely a united front. It's all of the players that were at the tournament. There's players that have been represented the side in recent years all coming together and signing this letter and saying, we are not going to come back to the national team. And I think that's that's a little bit different to what we saw before. There was a front. There were the, all the letters were the same letter. They were sent at the same time. But there was also the, the 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 picket was it the picket line wasn't as clear I suppose but um yeah the the collective action and the again is coming back to the conversation with this with this Spanish national team yeah. and I don't know the initial reaction for me is there's a lot of anger there's a lot of devastation but I think that hopefully that this can blow 
the situation open and there can be something positive at yes, the end it, of it. Yes. I mean, it, it feels a bit like Spain having their Me Too move, movement. And that is perhaps, you know, going to drive a lot of change beyond just only the women's football team. That's what we want, right? I mean, the power of these, uh, this World Cup is that it drives and facilitates change beyond just the sphere of football it shines a spotlight on so many broad issues, right, of gender equality that actually as a society we need to tackle going forward. Do, do you worry that sometimes that the beautiful sport, which is really meant to be focused on the game, becomes this platform for all these social issues? Or do you think it's actually very important and that we should embrace it all? I think it's very important that, and I think that's the element of women's football or a element of women's football that really draws people into the game, that the players care, that the people involved care and that they want to create an environment that is better and that is striving for better as well. Um, and that kind of stands in contrast to what we see a lot of the time in the men's game at the moment where the kind of structures that dictate the men's game, it's like commercialization, it's capitalism, yeah. there's less of there's less space to have those conversations. And so sometimes it can be very tiring. Sometimes you do just want it to be about the sport, I think, as a fan and to be able to focus on the the game itself and the successes there. And that's been, I think, a lot of people's experience with this Rubiales situation. They're like, this Spanish national team should be celebrating the most incredible moment of their professional lives. And we're talking about this guy and his delusional whatever is going on with him. and But at the same time, I think the short answer is I, I hope that women's football can still be a place to, yeah, talk about these bigger issues and talk about gender and power and equality and all of those important things. I think if if women's football reaches a place where those things aren't part of the conversation, then it might not be the same thing that it is now. It might not be as appealing for a lot of people. Yeah, and, and I think the most important thing here is that you want this, I mean, it's such a powerful platform to really bring all these issues to the fore. And at the same time, you're inspiring the next generation of, of girls and women and even young boys and men, right, to, to really step it up, right, and really create a much better world. The question is, the worry and fear is that, you know, all this fizzles out right after the World Cup. How do we sustain the momentum? How do we keep on going, right? Because after every mega event, there's that huge, you know, furor and excitement, but it all peters out in the end, right? How do we sustain the momentum of not just a beautiful game within the women's fraternity, but also, you know, moving forward, all these societal actions that need to be taken place. Mm. Um, what's been interesting, so this World Cup, there's a legacy plan for FIFA. There's also in um, Aotearoa, New Zealand and in Australia as well, there are legacy plans in place with the federations like recognising that there's all this energy and excitement that comes from a mega event, but that won't stay around forever. So that kind of plan will hopefully translate that into long-term, uh, I guess, gains and long-term returns from the tournament. So that's kind of the, there's a, that's a big first for this tournament. 20, the 2019 grants like world cup, the legacy plan from, I really haven't been able to find it on the internet, but that in itself, it wasn't really a big part of the conversation of how to sustain it materially. I think every World Cup, there is that rhetoric of, oh, this will be so inspirational for the next generation. But um, again, this is a big first in terms of, okay, inspiration is great, but how are we going to do this? In terms of 
I suppose the social issues and that kind of thing and keeping those in the conversation that that really has to be a concerted effort from everyone kind of involved in the game, including media. And that's a big conversation as well. People talk about, you know, mega events. There's this huge burst of coverage that focuses on these incredible athletes um, and incredible women's athletes, but then it kind of fizzles out. And so, and in order to sustain or I guess translate that, that burst of coverage into even slight improvements to the general landscape, again, I think it really has to be concerted. It has to be specific there has to be targets, there has to be accountability as well. It, again, you can't just run on vibes alone. That was Angela Christian Wilkes, researcher from the Deke, from Deakin University. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.